Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, I think in our last program, and uh, it may not have been our last aired program, because I don't know offhand what order these are going to air in, but the last one we recorded, we talked about um, drinks in the medieval era, uh, which is quite an extensive topic. Yep. Um, (laughs) Like, we barely got to the Middle Ages. We had to talk about so many things in in prehistory. Yes. So tonight, to follow all that up, we are going to be talking about food. Yes. Yeah. Um, food and drink, of course, go together. And probably one of the most um, obvious aspects of that is the Eucharist, which, of course, has come up before in this program. Oh, uh, yes. And um, we've talked, I know we've talked about, of course, um, we had our Easter episode where we talked about sort of instituting the Eucharist, essentially. Um, and we have talked since about the ways, particularly in which certain mystic women felt about the Eucharist, and we're going to sort of return to some of that. It's worth pointing out, though, that from a social standpoint, it's also very important. Um, so it's not just, of course, the Eucharist is both bread and wine, which are basically the two major food groups, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> alcohol and, and bread. Sure. But also, of course, right, um, it has to do with the quality of these things, Um and so the bread, this, of course, is sort of the point um, that the bread for the Eucharist is the finest white flour bread, right? So the mm-hmm. best flour sifted, baked by the, you know, offic- official professional bakers and so on. Um, and this is one of the sort of key points, really, um, is this idea of quality and how many people had access to that level of quality? So I thought we'd start with sort of um, a caveat, I guess, which is that nutrition in the Middle Ages, um, really like most times in history, I suppose, but certainly like the modern day, um, if you were richer, you obviously had more access to a lot of foods and a lot of varieties. And if you were not as rich, you did not have as much access. Right. That being said, in the Middle Ages, particularly as we hit sort of the high Middle Ages, lots of people do have access, right? So it can depend not only on class, but also on where you live. Mm -hmm. So um, if you live in an area with high traffic, (laughs) um, you know, cities where you might be surrounded by orchards, you get a lot of food in, there are markets, all this stuff, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have more access. A lot of trade, yeah. potentially. You're obviously going to have more access in those cases as well, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you live somewhere isolated and therefore maybe have to do everything yourself. So, again, right, there are ways in which this is very similar to the modern day. Sure. But it does mean sort of the average medieval peasant might not be as poorly nourished as one might think, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Okay. So you could definitely eat meat... Um, probably a few times a week, even if you're poor, you would have access to bread. You might not spring for the best, but, you know, you'd have access to good stuff. So, yeah, you know, very much, again, as sort of exists today. If you 
live in a place where there are sort of orchards around things like this, you'd certainly have access to seasonal fruit, even seasonal foods, you know, and if you live in a city, especially the rise of the middle class, you know, you can go to the baker and the butcher <laughs> and the cheesemaker. Like, you can start to buy all your stuff from shops mm-hmm. the way we still do today, right? So this is essentially, you know, it's it's very much in some ways the rise of modern food processing, I guess. Um, the way we think of food, the way we think of cities, really, that this is how they work. <laughs> um, so if you live in one... It's not quite as true in the Middle Ages. You've probably seen a cow. I mean, (laughs) um, you might own one. But, you know, that idea um, that you can go and buy things that are already made. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to do it all yourself necessarily. Um, If you are poor, you don't have access to as much. But there's enough stuff around that certain things are still going to be cheaper for you because they're available. They're taken in. So you might get the poorer quality stuff, but you can still buy, like, the cheap cuts of meat. Sure. Right. And so, so all of that is, is very much true then as it is now, basically. Yes. So uh, with that sort of caveat about nutrition and things, um, one of the points, of course, of the Eucharist is that it is high quality, um, particularly the bread is very mm-hmm. high quality bread. And it's worth pointing out that the sort of obviously the ritual aspects we have talked about, um, I did want to mention again, Carolyn Bynum's Holy Feast, Holy Fast, 1987. Excellent, brilliant um, watershed book that is very much about particularly the ways in which women interacted with this. And it's worth, of course, pointing out that um, feasting and fasting in the Middle Ages was very, very, very ritualized. Mm -hmm. So we have certain holidays. We're recording this Thanksgiving is sort of coming up. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That is definitely a feasting holiday. Sure. Um, Christmas. Christmas, Easter. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and we have ritual foods. You know, it's not necessarily religious ritual, mm-hmm. <laughs> but secular ritual, right? The turkey and Thanksgiving. Um, I apologize for the train whistle in the background. <laughs> but yeah, so the turkey on Thanksgiving. Christmas nowadays is freezing with turkey, but might be a ham or a goose, depending, right, on where you are geographically. Easter, of course, lamb, for example, mm-hmm. or ham, Right. Um, So we do have um, sort of festivals where we think about food and the meaning of food. Right. Um, Pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving is sort of required. And probably even some truly secular feasting days, um, like maybe, you know, hot dogs on the 4th of July or something. Right. So um, but this idea is very, very much ingrained into the Middle Ages. So feasting and fasting can be something, of course, monks and nuns do, obviously. Um, And Bynum's book, though, is about how really a lot of people, even who maybe aren't officially part of a religious order, in this case, women, use this cycle, ritual cycle, very much as a way to sort of gain a certain type of spiritual power. Mm-hmm. Right, and be recognized as such. Um, so in this case, a lot of the women discussed in this book, for example, they might live only on the Eucharist, at least apparently. Wow. Right, that that's essentially what they're living on. Yeah. Um, or there might be miracles associated with it. So they mm-hmm. might, they're about to see it, uh, or they're about to take it and they see the Christ child, you know, standing in the dish of the wafers or something like this. And that's a way of sort of gaining spiritual power, right? Because food is very, very ritualized. Mm-hmm. So... 
um, if we think about that, there are, of course, also feasting and fasting. There are fast days. And this is why this idea of fasting it is religious. A lot of holidays do require it. Monks and nuns had a lot of specific days that they were supposed to fast on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had dietary restrictions frequently, even when they weren't fasting. Right? There were things they weren't really supposed to have um, that were considered maybe too luxurious, for example. But at the same time, there is this reminder, of course, we do know Lent today. This is still... Oh, yeah. A sort of, you know, famous moment. Um, fish sandwiches start to show up at fast food shops, for example. I mean, ca- practicing Catholics don't eat... They eat fish on Fridays, right? Right. Because you're not supposed to have meat. Hence the, <laughs> the origin of the fish fry, which is a sort of Wisconsin staple wherever you happen yes. to go. Yes. I suppose, actually, because of all the German Lutherans in Wisconsin... Now I'm not sure anthropologically, Maybe. but um, um, I, there's definitely a thing yes. in Wisconsin where if you go out on Friday, there's yep. a fish fry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, of course, the point isn't that you're supposed to eat fish. The point is that you can't eat meat. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But fish is the, the substitute. Right. Yeah. Um, if you can't. Isn't there something about Estrian like Kashru beaver too as well? Counts as fish. Beaver tail counts as fish. Beaver tail counts because as fish. the beaver tail follows along in the water, <laughs> or something. I mean, who knows? It's kind of a made-up sure. rule. I mean, they yes, all are. <laughs> but this is the thing about it. Of course, is that um, you had to find ways to still let people get protein, basically. Right? So fish, for example, and as I said, that's old. I mean, that's kashrut. That's very old, the idea that fish isn't meat. Um, So that's of long standing. But what if you don't have immediate access to fish? Um, You know, you need to live somewhere nearby where fish are, at least relatively, because after a couple days, as we all know, fish start to smell. Yeah. Um, So you... Right. If you don't have refrigeration, that's suddenly a big problem. So there's a lot of smoking, there's a lot of salting, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which of course also, you know, many traditions do with fish. Um, Lox, Mm -hmm. for example. But other things were, for example, yes, like a beaver tail. Um, The beaver itself is obviously meat, but the tail ostensibly is not. But maybe, you know, it would give you some more options of things to I guess so. To eat, <laughs> is the point. The question how much there actually is to eat on the tail of any animal. But... I really have no idea. And yeah. I kind of assume that obviously if you have the tail, you also have the beaver. Mm-hmm. So maybe you save that for the rest of the week? I guess so. Yeah. You know. That would, that, you know. <laughs> um, but you Make it into a hat when you're done. Yes. It's like you, it's like... Use the whole thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, doesn't New York still have um, beaver on its seal, I think? The trade oh, man. in beaver pelts. Um, I would believe it. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so this this is sort of the point, right? Is that very, very ritualized. Um, and there are a lot of theories about things like, is the point that certain things are scarcer? I mean, Lent, of course, happens at the end of winter, right? Mm-hmm. Moving into spring. So there is potentially scarcity at this time. Um, You don't want to, you know, you've, um, the animals that you have left, maybe you don't want to slaughter them to eat because 
you want to keep them till spring to mate. I mean, things like that. Um, so there's some theory about the ways in which fasting works to help <laughs> sort of <laughs> prolong the food supply in times of scarcity. Sure. That being said, um, certainly during the Middle Ages, at a lot of points, as well as now, um, that isn't really necessarily the point of the fasting, right? It is it is the sort of the ritualized aspect um, of, of food, right? Um, and mm -hmm. we really, as I said, we really do still understand a lot of that, even if our rituals are a little bit changed. Uh, but it does mean that there's a lot of significance to things. So that means um, religiously, but also, of course, in a secular sense, there are things that the rich have access to, sometimes that the poor can't afford, but sometimes also if you aren't noble, you might not really be supposed to have, which of course is where things like poaching come in. Not poaching uh -huh. as in water, but poaching as in killing things that belong to someone else. Yes. That you as aren't. we see in, uh, is it in The Real Robin Hood? Oh, probably, yeah. I know mm -hmm. there's a there's a scene where they talk about poaching in... Um, Robin Hood men in tights, I think. Yes. But. <laughs> yes. This yes. is the point. Yes. Yeah, the, the king's, king's deer. deer. And something about like all the swans in the UK belong to the queen or something. Yes. Yeah. Certain types of birds were very important as well. Swans, peacocks. Um, yeah. So rituals can be religious. You know, the foods you do or don't eat on certain holidays. Rituals can also be. Um, in that case, sort of not just secular, but also very political, mm -hmm. right? Who does or doesn't get to eat certain things? Not just whether or not you can afford them. You might be a merchant class person mm -hmm. with a lot of money, but you're still not allowed to eat certain things because you don't have a coat of arms yet or whatever. <laughs> um, the, the food equivalent of like sumptuary laws that... Yes. Yeah, that, you know, some things are for specific classes. Yeah, basically. Um, so all of these things are really sort of important, uh, when you think about food in the Middle Ages. And also, of course, the way you think about how, how food was created, right? Um, and now it's also worth pointing out, uh, we've talked about one ritual aspect. <laughs> um, another fun side note for theater is that, um, the Last Supper plays in England, uh, for York and for Chester in the cycle plays for both, both York and Chester, um, the bakers were in charge of the Last Supper plays, hmm. which is not surprising because, of course, the Last Supper is where the Eucharist is instituted. And the big reveal would have been on the bread, right? Um, Jesus holds up this gorgeous loaf of bread, breaks it, gives it to everybody, right? This is my body. Sure. Um, and the bakers will have made sure probably you know, that the audience can just smell that bread, <laughs> right? It's an ad. Yeah. It's essentially an ad for what they do. Um, and that's true, honestly, hmm. for a lot of the the stuff. There's the funny one. We've talked a lot about the Chester harrowing of hell with the alewife. Yes. Yeah, and so the alewife <laughs> um, left in hell, and that pageant is done by the cooks. Oh, okay. Yeah, so presumably... This is the flip side, right? Bakers are esteemed. They're a sort of highly professional guild. One of the points is that a lot of people can't do what they do. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a sec. But basically, bakers, the sort of technology that is required to make 
the high quality bread required for the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Um, that is very special, right? Whereas cooks, they can be, obviously, they're sort of important. Um, if you're a high level household and you don't do your own cooking, you probably employ a number of cooks and you better trust them because, you know, that way they won't poison you if someone pays them to or whatever. Right. Right. But they aren't necessarily highly regarded as a profession in the same way. Mm-hmm. And the harrowing of hell, this is a sort of reminder in some ways of the kitchen. The kitchen is very much a metaphor for hell in the Middle Ages. <laughs> wow. Um, it is smoky. It is hot. It is nasty. Okay. Um, That's fair. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's no air conditioning. There has to be fire. Mm-hmm. You know, and you you can't just like turn off your oven. You also can't, you're not necessarily closing the door. I mean, there probably is open flame. So, um, yeah, it's just a sort of terrible place. It's very much, it's very (laughs) hell-like. Um, I think we've talked actually about Hrotsvit's play, um, about the martyrdom of the virgins. Oh, yes, where you have the guy who goes wandering blindly around the kitchen, crashing into things. Yes. Um, and he thinks, he actually thinks that he is sexually, um, assaulting the three virgins, and he is not, right? Divine miracle, he's in the kitchen, they're mm-hmm. in the room next door, and they're watching him um, make out with the pots and pans, which are covered in soot from the fire, of yes. course. And so he comes out, you know, just covered in soot. Um, and the But the point really is, right, that his lust has essentially led him into hell. And we know, of course, that that is where he will be going <laughs> mm-hmm. eventually. Whereas our three heroes... Um, will not be going there. Right. Right. And they were not in hell, right? But they saw him there, sort of wandering around. Um, but yeah, so that's the, this metaphor for the kitchen as hell. So there are a lot of interesting things around that sort of idea. Um, but anyway, so the, I, but also the fun point that, for example, the bakers doing the Last Supper can be sort of advertising their wares, right? Um, and that is the sort of contrast. The cooks are, of course, advertising themselves as a guild, but it's, um, it's a little bit less flattering, maybe, when you think about what they go through. Um, and it's also worth mentioning, again, there's a siren in the background, but, um, <laughs> it's not a siren, it's a train whistle. You live in the city of trains tonight. Yes, they're all going through, I don't know. Um, but Chaucer's cook in the Canterbury Tales, um, is sort of famously an unsavory character. Mm-hmm. That is kind of a food pun. Yes, he's unsavory. <laughs> Um, and he has this, like, oozing open sore, and you get this feeling that, like, the pus mixes into his white cream sauces. Anyway, Mm. so Chaucer is very, very much on the sense of, um, making fun of the cook. I mean, he makes fun of all of his characters, Mm -hmm. but the cook is sort of unsavory on a lot of levels. Uh, and that is a little bit of a reminder of the ways in which cooks were not necessarily esteemed, um, despite how necessary they were. Obviously, individual cooks could be esteemed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you made it up the ladder at a noble household, you certainly could, you know, you might be very important. You might be esteemed. You might end up, you know, being given a lot of money in a coat of arms. Like, that could certainly happen. Um, but cooks as a profession weren't necessarily esteemed in quite the same way. So is cooking at that point, like, seen as a primarily male occupation? Yeah, cooks are male. Obviously, women cook. <laughs> right. But yeah, the profession is seen as male. That being said, of course, there are going to be exceptions. So like our alewife. Right. You know, women did make beer, alcohol, things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but usually we're not professional cooks. But again, if you're running a tavern, then you're probably not only making the alcohol, you probably are doing a lot of the cooking. Yeah. Depending on, you know. Who I else feel is like around. I read somewhere that it was common for, you know, taverns to be operated by married couples or something like that. Yes. There's some businesses that it was much more common for people to go into uh, as a couple. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, and so you'd sort of split split the chores. And, yeah. And definitely, yes, in an inn or a tavern, things like the cooking, the making of alcohol. Yeah. But the sort of reminder also, even though we think of cooking very much as kind of female-oriented, um, it was just incredibly hot, dirty, awful work. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So um, maybe this is the time to mention some of these things. Sure. We So we might as well start with bakers. So ovens, first of all, range, of course, from the small household to the large, more industrial. Mm-hmm. And the sort of thing a baker would have. It's probably still true today. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but home ovens... at the, Throughout a lot of the Middle Ages, you might not have an oven in which you could really bake high-quality bread, right? That took mm-hmm. a good quality oven. You might have an oven where you would roast your small fowl or your, mm-hmm. you know, you would chop up your pig and roast him pieces at a time or whatever. Um, but you might not be able to bake high-quality bread in your oven. So usually, um, I mean... Gosh, ovens go way back, right? And it can be a pit, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, but it can also be a clay oven, you know, sort of what we would think of a pizza oven today, but smaller, you know. Um, They get bigger. Again, this depends, again, on the size of your house. I mean, you might have the equivalent of a pizza oven, but then you are Mm -hmm. certainly well off at that point, right? You might have just a sort of small one on the floor um, made of clay or possibly stone. If your house is not made of wood... (laughs) <laughs> if your house is also made of like stone or something similar, um, then it might be in a corner or against a wall, right? Probably near an entrance or exit, try and get the smoke out. Um, chimneys do come along in England or France by the sort of the 1100s, I think. Okay. Um, but generally... So it took them a while, yeah, basically. Yeah, and still, you know, you might or might not have one. So this is why, right? <laughs> it's very smoky. If- I guess, okay, so so if you think about the earliest ovens might have been something created to create charcoal, right? Which is where you want to control burning yes. without having too much airflow. I guess it makes sense that yeah. the idea of, like, let's control the airflow a lot is yes. a different idea. Well, also, charcoal um, you, is not necessarily as controllable. I mean, you definitely get embers, and you are mm-hmm. sort of making things, but you may or may not be making charcoal exactly. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of firewood. I mean, firewood is the thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. You need just astonishing amounts of firewood, basically. Okay. Um, and yes, hopefully if you can get charcoal... That's certainly what you want mm-hmm. out of your oven. Um, but again, right, these sort of smaller ones. And, you know, again, right, if your house is, is made of wood, then it's going to be in the middle of the room. And some cases, you know, houses, this is sort of early Middle Ages. Um, houses right. might have basically open hearths. I mean, you might not have an enclosed oven. Um, you might just do all mm-hmm. your cooking basically over a sort of little open fire. 
Uh, but essentially, but eventually you are going to have this sort of enclosed oven. Um, as they grow and become a little more sophisticated, uh, you might add sort of stone or tile. You do start to have an oven plus a stove, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is to say the inside part where you cook things in the fire and the a top surface where you can cook things on the hot surface. Yeah. Right. Um, so you start to get the stove oven as we basically have today, except of course today the stove is not heated by the oven, right? Um, mm-hmm. Same shape, but same principle, except sort of also not, right? But that's why that's what you get, because the top of the the stove part yeah. would have been heated by the oven part. I think, I think you can get some that are sort of like that, actually, in Britain. They're called agas. Oh, yeah. Um, they definitely do still exist. Yeah. But yeah, they are rare-ish. Um, I will say, actually, uh, the Maggie Walker house in Richmond, um, where you mm-hmm. can tour, and Maggie Walker lived there, the stove is really old. I mean, I think it's about probably turn of the last century. Okay. So, but, you know, so a little over maybe 100 years old. But it might be even mm-hmm. older than that. Um, it's this really... Because, of course, you know, they upgraded the house a lot, but this stove was, like, just this amazing iron stove, you know? And it's... Yeah, you can put wood into it on one side, and you cook things mm-hmm. on the other side. It does have gas, so you certainly can use the burners. Oh. You have to light them, you know. Mm-hmm. But you can also cook directly over the area, the oven part where the wood goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's definitely, and obviously the whole thing heats up, you know. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's an iron stove, <laughs> so it gets real hot, you know, yeah. But yeah, those were, I mean, they were incredible and they still work, basically, because that's, that's how a stove works, right? Um, also worth pointing out that, but while medieval stoves aren't usually made of iron, um, the cooking utensils are. I mean, cast iron has been around for as long as Ooh. people could make iron, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, and so you, no matter how poor you are, you probably have at least a cauldron. And a couple pans. Okay. You know, all cast iron. Um, and you hang your cauldron <laughs> over the fire, or you just pop it onto the fire, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with your pans. You know, they can be on the fire, or over the fire, or on the stove, if you have that type of... Um, and that's, you know, those are the main things. Um, fun fact, <laughs> the word chowder seems to come from the French word for pot. Yes. Chaudier. Hmm. So there we are, right? A chowder is like a seafood. Well, now we think of seafood, but originally it's probably just like it's a big stew that you put in this pot, right? This is also our daily, I don't know, weekly (laughs) reminder um, that English and Norman French have a lot in common because the Normans end up in England and therefore the languages combine. Right. So yes. we have all these fun, <laughs> fun things. Um, I've actually got another fun one. The word curfew. <laughs> um, this is all, you know, you can look in the OED, of course. These are all from the OED. Um, comes from the Anglo-Norman, right? So that's the Norman French in England, mm-hmm. right? So it's English-French, if this makes sense, right? So Angle, okay. Anglo-Norman um, couverfou, which comes from Old French to cover and fire. So essentially, couvier and faux, 
right? No. Um, and but that's nothing to do with what it means now. I mean, ah, well, so this was originally um, a regulation was in force in medieval Europe, including in England, um, at which at some fixed hour every night there was a ringing of a bell, which meant all fires were to be covered or extinguished. Hmm. And that was curfew. Okay. Yeah. And of course, the point was presumably to keep people from burning down their houses. <laughs> right. Right. And therefore, their houses, then the village. Or dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. That too. But mostly to keep people from burning down the village. Right? Yeah. Everyone has to cover your fire. Fair. And so if you have an open fire, you have to, you know, put it out. Um, but usually it meant, right, you had to close up your oven. So your oven can stay on heating everything, but you have to make sure it's closed. <laughs> right? The doors are closed. The fire cannot escape. Um, it might have literal doors. You might just seal it up with clay and then break it open in the morning or something. But, um, yeah, so you have to cover it up. And, yeah, so there we go. So curfew was the time of night when everyone was required to do that. Covered. Yeah, and now, of course, we just mean, like, a certain point at night when everyone's required to be inside. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so curfew. There we go. Yay. Anyways, <laughs> so, um, the fun things we get from, from French... In English, yes. But yeah, so those are your main things, right? You're sort of cast iron. And the sort of point here, of course, is that um, a lo- the reason you probably couldn't bake bread at home unless you have a rich home. Like if you have a important household with like a nice separate kitchen and a lot of cooks, then you are baking bread in your house. Mm-hmm. But if you are a single family home, not a merchant, you know, just a ordinary peasant sort of person, farmer, yeah. um, then you are probably not baking bread at home. Because, first of all, not only do you have a, to have a really high-quality oven to do it, a big, nice, high-quality oven, um, but also you have to have the grain, you have to get it ground, right? You have to take it to the town miller and probably pay taxes. You're not really supposed to be doing it on your own hand mill. Um, there there are actually riots about this, right? Pe- you know, people have too many hand mills that go oh. around and break your hand mills. Yeah, there's a whole stuff in England about this. The Peasants' Revolt has some stuff to do with this, yeah. Wow. And so you're not allowed to have your mill, right? You have to go to the town and people would revolt. And they'd create their own little hand mills because they didn't want to pay taxes to the Lord all the time. Um, and it's actually very closely connected to the idea of the Eucharist because this sense of everyone is supposed to have access to bread, but of course not everyone does, right? And the same way, communion, we think, you know, oh, you take it every week. No, absolutely not. I mean, you probably mm-hmm. got it like once a year. And that mm-hmm. was considered like fine, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, you do it um, once a year at probably Easter. <laughs> and that was it. You know? Yeah. So this sort of idea of, um, you know, what it meant <laughs> um, to be able to have access to your own bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was very closely controlled. So you had to not only be able to afford the, the grain, but to have it ground. And that was all before you baked it yourself. Right. So it wasn't necessarily worth it for, you know, a housewife or house husband um, to bake their own bread <laughs> at that point. I mean, they kind of tried to make it not worth your while to do that. Um, so that you would mm-hmm. go to the, you know, if you had to, you'd go to the miller. If you're a wealthy family and you can afford to be breaking a ton of bread for your household, then of course you'd go to the miller and you'd pay all that stuff, sure. But otherwise, um, that you would basically just go to the baker and buy your bread. Sure. Right. Yeah, for more on this, I suggest uh, Writing in Rebellion by Stephen Justice. <laughs> Got some fun stuff. 
anyways, so um, so this idea, right? So bakers were therefore, right? They are respected. Um, they have these great ovens. They bake the bread for the Eucharist, but also for a lot of people, for the town, all this stuff. Otherwise, right? Um, you might have, in addition, of course, to your pans, your cauldron, um, ladles. Ladles are big <laughs> in the Middle Ages. Um, ladles are an important tool. Knives, of course. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of knives. Um, and then, let's see. So um, you probably had a spit or a grill. Okay. And this could be for toasting bread. Yes, fun. Um, which you would do, of course, because then it would be harder. Um, and so the drippings wouldn't make it as soggy when you were using it as a plate. Right? Oh, they're big pieces of bread. Yes, for example. Um, so you might not bake it yourself, but you would toast it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so also spits, of course, which could be small, you know, for a mm -hmm. small bird. Um, or huge, you might roast a whole ox on a spit. This is obviously if you're a noble household. <laughs> um, <laughs> most people aren't. But, you know, some some households are certainly doing that. A well there a specific type of dog that was bred to turn spits? Yes, well, so... It's called a turnspit dog. Yeah, um, and usually that was kind of the same way oxen turned the mill, right? You'd have a little treadmill mm -hmm. that it would walk on. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they would, you know, yeah, and the gear, you know, there'd be a little gear and it would turn the thing. So if you had a well-equipped kitchen, yes, in addition to things like that, um, also uh, you'd frequently, whether it's a dog or a person, you know, it could also be like the kitchen boy, um, you'd probably put them behind a shield so that they didn't mm -hmm. get spit on by the stuff. <laughs> oh, sure. So they'd be behind kind of like a metal shield, potentially. Um, I mean, not always, but potentially, you know, if you care about your workers. So then <laughs> uh, we also have, if you have a well-equipped kitchen, um, you might have chopping blocks, of course, um, hooks, mm -hmm. you know, um, to tear apart meat. Um, you'd have a lot of different spoons as well as a lot of different knives, right? So in addition to your ladles, you'd have sort of long-handled spoons so that you could, um, there'd be a pan underneath the meat that's cooking, same as a drip pan in an oven today, right? And you, you'd mm -hmm. have your long-handled spoon and you'd spoon up the drippings and spoon them back over the meat, right? To baste it. <laughs> you'd have graters, of course, to grate cheeses or bread or, you know, lemons or whatever it is you're grating, <laughs> Um, and rasps, sieves, tongs, cleavers. Um, and again, like a, you know, a really well-equipped kitchen might have a whetstone. Um, for all your knives, of course, you do that yourself for sure. Mm -hmm. And then things like mallets, um, brooms, brooms made of twigs, right? Um, shovels for your oven. So both for the embers, of course, but also if you think like, um, you know, for a pizza or bread oven today, you know, to really move that stuff around in there. Yeah. And then all sorts of like, you know, um, flasks for liquids and pourings and you'd have plates and of all kinds. Um, you would have special like, um, salt shakers, you know, stuff like that for your, for all of your spices and seasonings, uh, mortars and pestles to grind stuff up. Mm -hmm. um, and then different types of cloth, right? Which you would use for... S like cheese cheesecloth? Yep, cheesecloth. Um, and also to strain your sauces or your soups or your stuff. Yeah. Oh, sure. Because 
You might not have like a metal sieve or something, right? Right. And also depend, you know, sometimes you do drain stuff through cheesecloth or whatever today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and so, which speaking of cheese, um, this is something absolutely you could do yourself. You know, you, I mean, cheese makers also were a thing, but mm-hmm. <laughs> you could also do this at home if you have a, an animal that gives milk. Um, there are, of course, soft cheeses and hard cheeses. Um, cheese presses for hard cheeses were frequently made of stone. And okay. yeah. Because um, hard cheese would last longer, right? Hard cheese lasts forever, sort of. You know, you can cut out the mold and it's still good. Um, mm-hmm. Soft cheeses don't last as long, right? Um, yeah, so it's cheese press to make hard cheeses to last you sort of through the winter or something. Because, of course, you know, milk, your supply of milk, especially if you just have like a family cow or something, does depend on that cow having a kid, right? <laughs> like, you don't yes. have perpetual milk. So, um yeah, so you'll want to make hard cheese for it to last. And then, of course, you know, you have a churn. We all know what a butter churn looks like, probably. They didn't change much in appearance after the Middle Ages. I mean, what they looked like are what you also get if you go to, like, colonial whatever in the U.S. Um, or watch Weird Al's Amish Paradise. <laughs> um, yes. So, yeah, so butter churns, of course, for butter. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, in a lot of ways, actually, the dairy, except for pasteurization, is very, very similar to today. Mm-hmm. As is the bread, honestly. I mean, some things don't change a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, they didn't make chocolate zucchini bread, necessarily, but, like... Sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when it comes but to, like... But actually, like, they would have been using, like, yeast captured from the air, right? Instead of dried instant yeast. Oh, they definitely got yeast stuff. So it is, like... Well, pretty yeah, similar okay. to <laughs> no, pretty similar to people making their own sourdough. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you don't, you know, and same thing. We'll go over some of the other ingredients they have. Yeah, you couldn't get most of these at the supermarket, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but yeah, but I mean, otherwise the process is very, very similar. Yeah. So um, you know, and again, we talked last time about alcohol and yeast that you need for st- right, and that brings us straight to bread. I mean, the yeast is very much seen as related between alcohol and bread. Mm-hmm. Which is also why we don't entirely know sometimes, like... Which came first. Which came first. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. So, um, anyway, so this is all the stuff you've got. And obviously you might have more stuff, depending. Um, when you want to clean stuff, you use... Again, you use cloth. You use a rough cloth um, with sand or maybe ashes to scour, scour, scour. Mm-hmm. And then that's how you clean stuff. Yep, and this is cast iron, so as we all know, you don't want to use dish soap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's all good. Yeah. Um, all right. So the sorts of things that you are doing, you are chopping a lot of stuff. Um, meat and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Lots of chopping. Um, you chop them up, you mix them, you season them. Um, and you might use them as a filling or a stuffing. So you put them in a pie. Um, and of course, this is a reminder of like savory pies, right? Which are are a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. The great British British cuisine. Yeah. Well, I just I want to give a shout out in Richmond. Here, I live very close to a place called Proper Pie Company. Yeah. Uh, and they're okay. from initially Australia or New Zealand. The owners somewhere, <laughs> some one of those two places. I apologize because they're very different, but I'm not sure which one it is. Um. And, you know, but they live here. So, yeah, so so it's definitely a sort of 
um, you know, the British colonized Australia, New Zealand. There is there is an aspect of that to their pies, but they're also just real delicious. But yeah, savory pies, which aren't something we do quite as much in the U.S., <laughs> Um, which is a shame. Proper pie is awesome. People do um, shepherd's pie sometimes, right? Yes, or That's chicken pot pie, I guess. Yeah. That is maybe chicken pot pies, yeah, and shepherd's pie, which doesn't have a crust, of course, it's mashed potatoes, but... Um, yeah. But yeah, does those... chicken pot pie usually just have a lid? Yeah. But that, I mean, that's how it's evolved, of course, yes. I mean, traditionally, mm-hmm. of course, you'd have the whole thing in a pie, and, you know, this is before the sandwich exists, because sure. you can hold it and eat it, right? Mm-hmm. It is self-contained. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, like, a, like a pasty. Yeah. Absolutely. Another weird upper Midwest. Yes. <laughs> the hand pie. Yes. Um, which also exists, of course, in Europe. But this is the point. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you go to Europe. I mean, they exist in all over. They exist in India. Samosas oh. are basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. 100%. I mean, everywhere in the world. I mean, things of egg rolls, right? Um, of which there are varieties everywhere in the world as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You fill a crust <laughs> with stuff. Everywhere, somebody's like, how can I bring this food with me? Yes. With a minimum of fuss. Yes. Um, tacos, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you have a crust of some kind or a shell, and it's some shape. I mean, basically, that's the only difference between these things, right? Um, An egg roll or something similar to that is a tube, right, Mm -hmm. that's wrapped, Um, you know, and then you have a pie that, of course, is (laughs) pie-shaped, right? It's got the cup bottom and a lid on top. Um, And then, yeah, a taco, you know, might be just, um, or, you know, uh, basically folded in half. Mm Mm-hmm. Pizza, of course, flatbreads exist everywhere as well. Um, yeah, and the idea is you take your crust and you put stuff on it, right? Um, the pizza, of course, is interesting because it is open. Yes. Right, you put the stuff on top, then it is open. But if you are in certain places in the United States, you will fold your pizza in half <laughs> when you eat it. <laughs> Long ways. You can make a calzone, right? Absolutely, yeah. So. Which is... That exact thing that we are talking about. Yes, the pastry yeah. filled with stuff. The, the crust filled with stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, banh mi. There you go. Um, like at the taco, only different. But yeah, so that idea. Banh mi is from the French. Yes. Yeah. French, I don't know the, the actual French word. occupation. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah. It, banh is from, I think, from the French word pain. Oh, that's cool. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it frequently is sort of the folded in half type. I know it also comes, of course... Um, a, like a mini baguette, usually, Yeah, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, traditionally, of course, what you would do is sort of hollow it out a little bit so it would really stick in there and you could close it up. Now you just, you know, it's just a sandwich. But, um, but this idea, right? So all of these things exist, and some of them are very, 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 very old. <laughs> And the more closed in they are, the older they probably are. Although flatbeds are actually super old. Pizza goes way back in Italy. You know, like the 13 or 1200s even. And that's just one way of reference to it actually being called pizza. Flatbread goes back mm-hmm. to the Romans and before. I mean. Um, but yeah, so you have a crust and you put your stuff on it. So um, 
yeah, so basically you chop up meat and vegetables and you possibly put them in a pie. Uh, you might make them into meatballs. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you might stuff them into another food, like a bird, probably. Mm-hmm. Birds get stuffed a lot. So that's one these that's one big version of things, right? You make a stuffing and then you put it into either a pastry form or you cook it as meatballs essentially, um, or you cram it into something else like a bird probably. Stuffing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Okay, so then other possibilities. There are also, by the way, if if this is a feast and you're gonna be serving this at a you know feast and you want it to look cool, you might basically make a McRib out of it. <laughs> What? Yeah, so you might like fold it back around or make it look like the make it look like meat that is on a turkey bone or something. Oh. Not a turkey, I mean, okay. but a chicken bone. But you've actually it actually isn't. It's the meat paste you've made. <laughs> but you like might form it back into that shape. Sure. You know? Cuz that that's sort of the thing, right? Um and you get this sometimes today more with fish, I think, where you might get the fish and you get the head and the tail and the middle and it's all been cooked, but then they put it back together. Okay, I have seen you know? that, yeah. So that it's, so that sort of thing is, is very big as well. Um, Alright, so all of these things. Um, in some cases, of course, you... This is all for things you're going to eat now. As mm-hmm. I said before, there's definitely curing of various kinds. So um, you dry fish, you salt them, you smoke them. You can do this to meat as well, of course, mm-hmm. but fish is a big one because, again, Lent. Right? Then you've got your supply of fish that you're going to eat on Lent. as like smoked cod or something, probably. <laughs> um, or dried, at least. Anyway, yeah. So, um, okay. All of these things. Some other fun things <laughs> about cooking, right, um, are, of course, all of the ingredients. So... Um, it is worth probably pointing out at this time, some of the early cookbooks we've got, basically from the 1300s, we've got, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about this one, but there's a famous early French one. The earliest edition is probably from about 1300. It's got four extant manuscripts, um, and that was printed around 1486, um, with additional, a lot of additional recipes that aren't in the original manuscript, so whoever printed it threw in a lot more stuff. Um, and this is Le Viandier. Uh, original author unknown, it ends up getting attributed to this really famous cook, but he clearly didn't write it originally because mm-hmm. the first edition came out the year or even before he was born, 13, around 1300. But that's got some great stuff. <laughs> the most famous thing probably is the peacock recipes. So this is the mention, of course, this is a royal cookbook. Certainly a noble cookbook, but basically a royal cookbook. Um that's why you get peacocks, right? Nobility can have peacocks, other people can't. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but, f- yes. But so here's one of the peacock recipes. You blow and inflate them like swans. So this is something you would also do for swans, and swans, of course, are more oh. frequently eaten. Okay. Right. So you, uh, theoretically, the person reading this would know what to do with swans, and the point is you do peacocks the same way, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So you blow and inflate them like swans and roast and glaze them similarly. Serve them in the last course. Uh, when they are reclothed, so this goes to what we just said, right? You save all the feathers and you make, you prepare them the same way you do swan, and then you basically put the feathers back on. Um, and you should have slender, oh, interesting. thin wooden spits to pass among the tail feathers or a bit of brass wire for setting out the feathers as if the peacock were spreading its tail. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you wouldn't put all the feathers back on, right? But the tail feathers, obviously, is the point. So it comes out looking like it's got its tail spread. Yeah. Uh, and then boar, meaning pig, boar, right? <laughs> B-O-A-R. <laughs> um, cook in wine and water. If fresh, um, you eat it with a special sauce. Um, there are a few possibilities. A sour pepper sauce, for example. Um, if salted, with a mustard sauce. <laughs> So if it's been preserved, then you eat it with a mustard sauce. If it's fresh, something okay. like a sour pepper sauce. Yeah. Um, capons or veal with herbs. Cook them in water, pork fat, parsley, sage, hyssop, wine, <laughs> saffron, ginger, uh, fruit juice, which is a sour juice from apples or unripe grapes or something. Um, verjuice. Oh, yeah. It's like, um, I just heard about this. Ooh, yes. Verjuice is like grape. It's like grape juice made from wine grapes. Yeah. So it's it can not also be fermented. Like, right. Yeah, it could also be like crab apples or something. Yeah. So, yes, verjou. Yeah. Also, capons, for those who don't know, are roosters. Yes. Right. Yes, that have been castrated, probably, to make them fat. Okay. Yeah, which is also what you do to, like, ox and, you know, animals that you want to eat, male versions of animals you want to eat. Uh, and the French have different names for all of them, and so we do too frequently in English. Um, you castrate them so that they just eat a lot. Because they're not having sex, right? So they just eat a lot. Sure. <laughs> I believe this is the theory, but it also turns out <laughs> to be kind of true. Right? And then they, then you and then you eat them. Yeah. So that's... <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yep. Um, but yes, yeah, so you'll notice all the stuff in there, right? Parsley, sage, hyssop, all these herbs, right? Saffron, ginger. Mm-hmm. So obviously a lot of these things are rare or hard to get and that is you know absolutely true i don't even know what hyssop is oh yeah a plant yeah uh you know it gets mentioned in shakespeare and things it's it's another it's a flowery herb thing yeah um so that's a great one yeah there's a lot of fun stuff it's also worth pointing out that it's got um recipes from a lot of different places a lot of medieval cookbooks Mm -hmm. do so this is a french cookbook but it's got stuff from like spain it's got arabic recipes Obviously, Spain has a lot of Arabic oh, cooking. Interesting. Yeah, so it's definitely, you know, this is a time when there's been a lot of trade, not only in things like spices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you notice that one mentioned saffron, right? But also recipes. Yeah. That is a very Spanish thing, somehow. Yeah. So you definitely, you trade recipes as well as ingredients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, food, everyone loves food from everywhere. This has always been a thing. So do you think it's mostly the trading of recipes rather than, like, migration of people? Well, it's, it's both of these things. But, yeah, a lot of it's just along the trade routes. And you think of, like, mm. the Silk Road and all these things. Um, yeah. You know, spices and really fascinating things get traded, and the recipes come with them. I mean, the, mm-hmm. and the traders themselves absolutely then do bring those back, right? Mm-hmm. But also, you know, you're like, oh, there's this amazing thing that we found, and this is how you use it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sephra, yeah. that this is how you use it. You know, and eventually, of course, cooks start working it into stuff from home that didn't used to include those things. But yeah, you know, you sort of learn how to use it. But definitely, it's trade in both people, but also just trade, yeah. I know that happens today, like, a fair amount that if you happen to be on whatever the mango marketing board, mm-hmm. you have to like 
convince people who maybe live in areas that mangoes don't normally grow, like, this is how you open it. This is, you know, things you can do with it. Stuff like that. Yes. No, absolutely. If you think about, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you could buy mangoes. They're Mm -hmm. kind of like a delicacy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And now you can get mango flavored everything. Yeah, of course. And part of it is like you have to convince people that mango is something they want. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's true for, oh gosh, like acai berries or, right? Oh god, yeah. You know, whatever it is that's that's suddenly around that everyone's like, oh my god, Mm -hmm. I never heard of that thing before. And then... Pomegranate juice. Yeah. Was a thing. And of course, pomegranates have been around. I mean, as have mangoes. Like, these things have all been around forever. Yeah. But people learning how to use them. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's great, because then everyone Google stuff, and you you learn recipes from other places, and then you start, you know, people start being like, oh, I can substitute mango for this thing that I usually do with something else, yes. <laughs> with banana or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. That has happened for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Um, that's why turkey replaced goose on everything. You know, I think I've occasionally hmm. said turkey in this episode, and obviously they're not eating turkey in Europe. <laughs> right. Um, but we have taken a lot of these same recipes and we now do them with turkeys instead of geese mm-hmm. or definitely instead of swans or peacocks. Yeah. Yeah. The turkey makes is makes me thing. wonder if turkeys are also easier to catch. Raise sorry. Catch. <laughs> sorry, turkeys. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know. Oh, geese are mean. I mean, they are. I, they are mean. Yes. I have not actually <laughs> encountered wild peacocks, but I don't know how friendly I would believe them to be. Well, peacocks, like, I mean, to be fair, I've seen peacocks on estates in England where they still keep them on some of the estates because mm-hmm. for tourists or whatever. What um, else are they going to do? Yeah, but they're not, <laughs> I mean, wild, they're not, those are not wild peacocks. Those are peacocks mm-hmm. that aren't, you know, fed by someone who lives on this estate. <laughs> Right. But yes. they're but they're as wild as they would have been in the Middle Ages as well. I mean, you had a flock of peacocks that you would slowly mm-hmm. raise and some you had a peacock feeder and um so and they're not particularly like I you know, you don't walk up to them. Mm-hmm. But they're not territorial, it seems to me, in the way that geese are. They might be during mating season or something, right? But the way, you know, even like Canada geese, if you're on a golf course um, which I never am, but just when you're in a park, um, mm-hmm. you know, the college my mom taught at was across from a golf course and the Canada geese would take over that freaking campus. Yeah. And you would go there and like, you know, you just might not be able to walk down that sidewalk. Like you would have to go around. <laughs> yes. You know, and the peacocks are on these palaces or whatever, you know, they're fairly well trained. Like, they're not Mm -hmm. technically trained, but they leave people alone. They sort of move out of the way. They don't get super close. So, yeah, they they don't seem to be territorial in that way. Um, And certainly turkeys, although, as you know, turkeys can be rude. Wild turkeys can be kind of aggressive. Yes, but still not quite the same way as geese. I mean, geese are really... um... Geese will come at you hissing. (laughs) Yes. Turkeys... At least when turkeys are with their young, they kind of, like, they'll squawk, but they'll also run away. Yeah. Whereas geese are like, I'm not taking any chances. Yeah, basically. Um, So, let's see. A few other cookbooks quick. Um, The Liber de Coquina, meaning just cooking book, 
also mm-hmm. from sort of early 1300s. It comes in two different parts that might have been written by two different people. Um, and the first part is sort of um, like wine compositions, poultry and meat, fish, certain stuff. Um, and part two is like vegetables, pastry, fish. Um, mm-hmm. So there's sort of two different versions. Um, and also that tells you how to make some of the ingredients that might be mentioned earlier on, which of course is what you get in cookbooks today, where it's like, here are yeah. how you make all these sauces that then later dishes will need. <laughs> uh, but instead of telling you every time, we're just going to be like, make this with this sauce, see this sauce on, you know, whatever page at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I just want to mention the form of curry, which is <laughs> middle English, but the curry is not modern curry or Definitely mm-hmm. not from India, right? It's from the French to cook, right? Mm. Queer. Um, so you see how that happens, right? <laughs> Form of sure. curry. Yeah. So this is Middle English. It's basically from the reign of Richard II, um, who's murdered in 1400. So this is the end of the 1300s. There are nine extant manuscripts, I think. Um, and it's one of the earliest cookbooks to mention a lot of stuff in England. Um, so you get olive oil, <laughs> gourds Mm -hmm. which is fun um spices like mace and cloves Mm -hmm. so it tells you what they're importing and this is of course i mean this is for richard ii basically um oh and by the way there's a bbc program called clarissa and the king's cookbook where clarissa dixon wright cooks recipes from this book yeah and this is the book yeah um so let's see it also contains nutmeg caraway ginger pepper cardamom okay so all things we absolutely use today, and this is some of the earliest times that we that they're written down in English cooking, which of course doesn't mean much, but you know this is the king getting them. So a lot of things that have become common presumably weren't yet, right? Um, and then among the animals that you are preparing, uh, whale. What? That's whale. What? Yes, yeah. whale. <laughs> whale. Actual whale. <laughs> you know, people are fishing okay. for yeah. whales. Yeah. I mean, um, crane. Okay. Hmm? I mean, I knew that they would. They yeah. were certain. They were killing whales because of Hunted. um ambergris. Yep. But okay. Yeah. Um so yeah, whale, crane, you know, yeah. the bird, heron, mm-hmm. similar. Um, seal. You know, like seals. Um, and porpoises. Okay. Yeah. Um, and shows influence from France, Spain, and also Arabic cooking again. Um, which of course also can be partly the Spanish influence as well. Um yeah, so it's definitely also international. And there's some really fun stuff. <laughs> so here's one example um, of a sort of sauce. Um, sage, parsley, hyssop, um, savory, quince, pears, garlic, grapes. Take all these things and stuff a goose. Okay. <laughs> um, sew the whole so that no dripping comes out. Roast them well and keep the dripping that falls from them. Take gelatin and the drippings, and place in a posset. Um, a posset is a hot drink made of milk curdled with wine mm-hmm. or ale, often spiced. All right, when the geese, goose is roasted enough, or multiple geese, depending, um, take and chop it into pieces. Take what is within, so the stuff, put it in the posset, um, and put in wine if it's too thick, so to thin it out, use some more wine. Add powder of galangal, um, and then also powdered deuce, which was a spice mix at the time. If you think of how we can buy yeah. mixes. Um, salt. And boil the sauce and then dress the geese in dishes and lay the sauce okay. on. Okay. <laughs> Alright, so that's one example. Um, 
there's some other fun ones like small birds roasted and covered in a sauce of almond milk mm-hmm. with shredded sheep or goat meat decorated with hard-boiled eggs. Yeah. So anyway, there's a ton of fun things. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, what you are doing at this time, you are boiling, stewing, roasting, frying, and baking. Yeah. These are the main, main ways in which you are making things. Um, because, fi- I mean, you got fire, and you can use it a lot of different ways, but that's basically what you got. Right. And... Um, you know, it has a lot to do as new ingredients come in. It has a lot to do with how you can spice or season things. But there isn't a huge variety of still in how in the sort of ways you can cook them. Mm-hmm. Just in like what you have available with seasonings and spices. And of course, also with actual foodstuffs, right? So as you start to be able to import certain types of fruits or vegetables or meats from other places, then those become exotic, you know. But that's that's the sort of thing that changes, really, are the, the spices that you can use. Yeah. Yep. Some of those spices... So... Like, I think Galangal is more Asian? East Asian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're yeah. getting stuff from far away, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's also worth pointing out, so one of the things that all cookbooks forever have had trouble getting across mm-hmm. <laughs> is um, temperature and timing. Yes. So I do want to give a shout out to um, Adamson Food and Medieval Times. And this is a great quote. Um, then as now, temperature and timing were the two most important factors that often meant the difference between success and failure in the preparation of a dish. And both were extremely hard to communicate in a recipe, given that the instruments to measure them were either non-existent, right? They did not have thermometers um, or very crude, if available at all, mm-hmm. clocks. You don't have those great, like, little millisecond clocks or whatever that we got, obviously. So not surprisingly, medieval cookbooks are full of helpful hints on how to stop food from boiling over or burning in the pot, um, how to avoid the taste of smoke in a dish, <laughs> uh, because if you do mess up, you know, how do you get sure. rid of the smoke taste, um, with directions as vague as cook it on a gentle fire or make a tiny fire. Mm. Right. Which basically meant the cook had to know from experience or intuition what temperature was appropriate for a certain dish. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course, that's very similar today. They'd be like on low heat, on high heat. What the frick right. is, well, you know, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> right? I mean, like when, you're, yeah. when your oven is basically a box with fire in it, then how hot it gets depends a lot on how good the box is. Right. To some extent. Yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's why bakers... You know, you got professional grade ovens. Bakers are sort of special. Yeah. It's, you can do stuff in a, um, you know, those big pizza ovens that get to 900 degrees that I can't do in my (laughs) home oven for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But I do feel like when you read the, when you read the instructions, I do feel like they're, they're writing them for someone who sort of has an idea what they're doing. I mean, if you're a cook with access to a recipe book, you already know a lot because you are, you Mm -hmm. are a cook in a high powered place that has a recipe book. Yeah. So, so is this set up, (laughs) are the kitchen set up like the kit, the cook sort of directs everybody else and reads the recipe book? Yeah. So and stuff like that. Yeah, basically. And cooks could work their way up from like scullery boy to, to, head chef, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But that also meant, yes, yeah, some education along the way, which means, yeah, so some of, you gotta learn. in some cases, you're going to be able to read the recipe book. Um, but it also means that you 
yes, you learn all this stuff. And it becomes very much like a kitchen today where you have the head chef and then the, you know, saucier and, right, you had the sous chef. You have, like, these different positions in the kitchen. The head sure. person is directing them all. Yeah. And that's very much what happens in the big kitchens. Um, and so they know, right? And they only need sort of guidelines. Um, it is worth pointing out, though, that, of course, by the time we get to the late Middle Ages and you have printing... So like I said, the um, 1486, you know, when the French cookbook is first, uh, Lavandier is first printed around then. Um, at that point, you are expecting people who are doing their own cooking to perhaps be able to buy your book, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least people who are maybe doing their own cooking with the help of a chef, you know, so you're still well off, you can buy these ingredients, but right. you might be doing it yourself. And so that's when you have to start figuring out how to give more hints. Um, so, like, the cooking times, this is my favorite part, so I will finish maybe with this. Um, I also want to say, right. by the way, I've been watching, you know, I watch a lot of baking shows around this time of year, and that's one of the things that's always really impressive, right? They pop stuff in the oven, and the really good ones, like, they know when it's done. Like, they put it mm -hmm. in the oven, and then they go back and they get it, and it's done. And some people, you know, they forget, it, like, it's a little burned when they go back, or some people it hasn't cooked fully, it's yeah. not... Um, they hover. Yeah. They check it too much. Yeah. And you drop the temperature of the oven and you mess everything mm -hmm. up. But the good ones, like, they just know. Right? And that's mm -hmm. definitely what we're kind of looking at here. <laughs> um, the, mm -hmm. the difference between those who know and those who don't. So, um, yeah. So, the same book. This is Adamson's book. Um, the same is true with cooking times. Um, even if a recipe provides information on the quantities of ingredients which is also rare, right? It assumes you sort of know what to put in or how much of all these things to put in to make a good sauce, right? It almost never provides cooking times in hour, in hours or minutes, right? So the best a reader can hope for is a comment referring to a generally known activity, like saying a prayer or walking a certain distance. So a sauce oh. is to be stirred for as long as it takes to say three paternosters. <laughs> Nuts are to be <laughs> boiled for as long as it takes to say a miserere. Some ingredients for meat are to be boiled for as long as it takes to walk around a field. And others for as long as it takes to walk half a mile. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... And that made me think, you know, washing our hands for as long as it takes to sing happy birthday twice. Right? Yes. Um, which is kind of funny, because it's, it's a reminder that although professional cooks today use precise minutes, seconds, hours, um, the mm -hmm. ordinary person honestly, is probably going to be better with something like this, <laughs> right? How long does it take me to say three paternosters, yes. right? Um, you're sort of more likely to recognize that than however many minutes, right? Yeah. But then at the same time, you know, measurements are another thing. Measurements of any kind are horrible in the Middle Ages and really all the mm -hmm. way through the modern period. I mean, only recently have cookbooks gotten better at this, you know, a pinch of this, right? <laughs> a pinch of mm -hmm. that. What's a pinch? You know, so medieval cookbooks do mention gallons, quarts, pints, pounds, ounces, and of course numbers, right? Numbers of eggs or stuff. Um, but they might also give you things like, you know, the width of a finger. Right, so presumably like okay. that much, you know. <laughs> um, and we actually, you know, when you pour whiskey, right? People do say finger. You say right? fingers, yeah. Yeah. Do they? So that idea of that type of measurement. <laughs> I don't drink that much whiskey. Do they literally mean like you put your finger across the bottom of the glass and? Well, not anymore, of course. Right. But yeah, theoretically, right? Like three fingers, if you hold them up next to the glass. Oh, okay. Sort of and, that tall, yeah. right? And you have like the sort of standard size tumbler 
for whiskey. Right. But obviously that is not actually, you know, I don't know what the actual measurement is, but mm-hmm. today you have an actual measurement. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, but that's, it's funny, that sort of idea, um, or that cookbooks in the Middle Ages will say, you know, twice as much as mm-hmm. something, or a quarter of the amount of something, right? Or just not too much of something, you know? Sure. But it is funny, because... Of course, again, if you really know what you're doing, you know what that means. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of how much is too much and how much is not enough. And if you don't really know what you're doing, you need the precise instructions. Right. Yes. And that is true to this day. I mean, some things just don't change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, you also know if they tell you like 400 degrees, you're like, you know what? But actually, I'm going to do this other thing and then I'm going to do it at like 420. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you know. Yeah. But if you don't know, you need to be told, right? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. And there are some things you can do that with and some things you cannot. Yes. Yeah. But it's funny, like, how much things sort of have and haven't changed. Oven technology is extraordinary today. Obviously, stove technology is mm-hmm. extraordinary. We have so many utensils in a kitchen. I mean, obviously, they don't have blenders. They don't have certainly electric blenders. Yeah. What? But on the other hand, like, to chop an onion today is the same as it was to chop an onion 500, 800, 1,000 years ago, mm-hmm. you are good at it or you aren't good at it. And hopefully we can insert the clip of um, Meryl Streep as Julia Child learning oh. to chop an onion. <laughs> yes. It's such a fantastic scene. Yes. Yes. I honestly learned a lot about cooking from that from that movie. Like, I yeah. think my chopping technique improved, but... Mm-hmm. It's quite fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like... And um, I remember there's a blog somewhere where someone said, um, you know, watching certain cooking shows and they're like, yeah, that making that dish will take you 20 minutes if you can chop stuff as fast as they can. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Which, you know, yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah. Good luck. Then is now. Yep. Some things just don't change. I mean, it's the same for all our technology. I think I have a a relative who tried to play along to an episode of um, Chop. Oh, gosh. And he's like, he's a really good cook, but found it extremely challenging um, just to do, you know, do an appetizer in whatever, 20 minutes. Yeah. But it tells you just how, when you're a professional, just how good and fast you are, which of course is also true in the Middle Ages. I mean, if you're a professional at that level cooking for a household, it's like dinner rush, Mm -hmm. lunch rush every, you know, yeah. You have to be able to turn out that meal in that amount of time. Like that's. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, like. You can, you probably start in the morning making all the yep. stuff and prep it, you know, just mm-hmm. so that everything is ready to be sauced at eleven forty-five or yep. whatever and brought yeah. up. And, and you probably get your kitchen boys. It's an all-day job. Prepping stuff, you know. That's how you learn. Mm-hmm. There might be prepping stuff mm-hmm. before you get up. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yep. So that is the fun. The ways in which things both have and haven't changed. Um, you know, in some ways, like, yeah, our ovens and our stoves are way superior, but also not so much different. Like, mm-hmm. they're superior in that they maintain a temperature, a specific temperature that you tell them easily, without actual fire. <laughs> right. They're much more insulated. Yeah. So you can, you know, make stuff and not... Cook in the summer. Yeah, you can cook in the summer. <laughs> it's not always pleasant, but it's not... You know, your your house isn't going to be 150 degrees. Right. On the other hand, it's more like we've improved the technology, mm-hmm. right? Like, we haven't come up with a way that we're going to cook a chicken with sound waves right. or something like that. Exactly. 
yeah, we actually, otherwise we still really do things basically the same way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at things like, yeah, like an old school bread oven or pizza oven that, you know, people brick buy or create a brick one in their backyard or something, right? Yeah. Or even a barbecue uh, with charcoal. That's, yes, those are very high tech now. They come with temperatures and thermometers. and But, that, you know, again, it's the same design <laughs> with just more consistency, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really very impressive. You know, cast iron is still a thing that people have in their kitchens. Yes, we have stainless steel. We have, you know, whatever. But some things it's hard to improve on. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Food. All right. Food is always delicious. <laughs> Woo. Yes. Yes, yes. All right. Let me think. I think we can put some links in the comments to or in the in the notes section, too. I think... Um, there's been a couple of cooking programs where they talk about cooking medieval dishes that yes. might have clips up on YouTube. Yes. Um, the one, uh, the one Jesse mentioned, uh, Clarissa and the King's Cookbook, um, stars one of the old, the ladies from the British cooking show Two Fat Ladies, mm-hmm. which <laughs> was, yeah. um, yeah, it was a really nice little cooking show. And mm-hmm. actually, like, at the individual recipes, they often did, like, historical stuff. Yeah. Or went to, like, specific abbeys and mm-hmm. cooked, you know, stuff with their gardens and things like that. So Yeah. Which is, I mean, really cool. Because speaking of technology, we can still make things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can still make things in those kitchens and with those ovens and... With those utensils. And yes, you can still grow your yeah. own stuff in your garden and use it to cook. Which also people still do. Yeah. Quite fun. All right. Yay. Cool. Yeah. There's a really great one of, I don't know if it was them, but making um, a a pie, a savory pie. And there's also one where Alton Brown does it in one of his um, Good Eats, where he makes a few different types mm-hmm. of savory pie, and one of them is a sort of old-school medieval version. You basically just, like, wrap a bird in a pastry <laughs> shell and cook it. <laughs> yes. Um, which is hilarious. Anyway, yep. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Because, like, one thing you think about, I don't know if this is actually true. I often get the feeling that people were like, oh, you know, they didn't have whatever sugar or something back then, so everybody was healthier, but yeah. it's really not <laughs> no, <laughs> really not the case. Like, I think people underestimate the amount of trade that was going on, and especially trade in, in foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and some of these actually definitely use sugar. Yeah. You know, or honey all over the place, mm-hmm. which is sugar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Basically sugar. We should yeah. not underestimate the extent to which people... I mean, it's one of the reasons, you know, tooth decay was a big thing. St. Apollonia got a lot of prayers. I mean, (laughs) you know. Yes. And and it's not just because of not brushing your teeth. Or like, yeah, it's because in as society becomes more sedentary and sort of industrialized, even before the literal industrial revolution, but back when you start to get, yeah, the cities of the Middle Ages. And um, yeah, there's a lot of people sitting around eating a lot of stuff that's probably not good for you. (laughs) Because... Yeah, bakers make honey buns and whatever, and come on, like that. Yes, that's what people want. <laughs> yes. Yeah, alcohol is a ton of sugar. I mean, yep, you rot your teeth. Yeah, and that is what happens. Yep. Saint <laughs> Apollonia. It's good to know some things never yes, change. We, yes, 
we thank thee for thy work, etc. And also yes. for providing us with fluoride in the modern era. All right. <laughs> yeah. This is the biggest, Yay. the biggest advance. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're going to leave it there because yep. this has gone pretty long. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to get our updates, get on the Ask a Medievalist Facebook page and check out the episode notes. You can also find them at askamedievalist.com. And if you go to that website, we also have a form you can submit um, where you can ask us questions and you might get an answer in an upcoming episode. I think that's all the all the announcements. So hopefully <laughs> you're all <laughs> having a good time and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 